Good evening. I'm Anna Halligan, and this is the Ecology Hour. Tonight, I have a pre-recorded interview with Kate Lundquist and Brock Dolman, who co-direct the Water Institute and the Bring Back the Beaver campaign for the Occidental Arts and Ecology Center. The Occidental Arts and Ecology Center is a beautiful 80-acre research, demonstration, advocacy, and education center located in western Sonoma County. And the center focuses its work to develop strategies for regional scale community resilience and the restoration of biological and cultural diversity. Our conversation was focused on the critical role that beavers play in maintaining healthy ecosystems, such as by creating wetland habitat and recharging aquifers. While these industrious animals are beneficial to many other species, including humans, they can sometimes cause damage to private property. This has led to the trapping and killing of tens of thousands of beavers throughout the U.S. every year. But proactive and common-sense solutions can help beavers and people coexist and work together to preserve wetland ecosystems. Wetlands are among the most productive ecosystems on Earth, providing resources like fish, other wildlife, timber, and opportunities for recreation. They provide indirect benefits through ecosystem functions such as flood control and groundwater recharge, and despite their importance, more than 53% of wetlands in the U.S. have been lost since 1780. Old commercial records from the fur trades and some of the first written descriptions of portions of the continental U.S. suggest that it's difficult to imagine what river corridors throughout the country once looked like. The great majority of small to medium-sized rivers did not have a single freely flowing channel. Instead, most streams and smaller rivers branched repeatedly around large log dams and beaver dams and had a stepped morphology with large areas of ponded water separated by short drops, as well as extensive floodplain wetlands beyond the active channels. Beavers, often known as ecosystem engineers, have been credited with creating this type of diverse habitat, and loss of beavers and their engineering has resulted in substantial loss of riparian wetlands and associated declines in habitat abundance and diversity, as well as nutrient uptake and storage of water, sediment, carbon, and other nutrients. Tonight, in my discussion with Kate and Brock, They will explain how we can shift to more adaptive, proactive, and non-lethal approaches that prevent conflicts with beavers, avoid damage to human property, and preserve beavers in the ecosystems they help maintain. I think my first question for you both is just, and either one of you could address this, but um, I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about what the Bring Back the Beaver campaign is, like how did it get started, and um, what is the campaign doing? So Brock and I have been doing watershed restoration work from the Occidental Arts and Ecology Center for a couple of decades now. And in our work to recover listed salmon, in particular coho salmon, we were really kind of scratching our heads trying to pull all of the tricks out of of the hat and make sure that we were exhausting all the, the opportunities for recovering them. And and one thing that was blatantly missing in the portfolio was beaver, because we noticed colleagues in other states were doing a lot of great work 
partnering with Beaver to restore coho salmon in particular, and there's a lot of great research coming out showing the benefits, and we realized that, wow, what's happening in California? How come we aren't working with Beaver more proactively to make sure that our salmon are having the habitat that they need to survive. And so that really kind of got us inspired initially to get more serious about focusing on beaver restoration in this state and figuring out ways that we could remove obstacles to making sure that the beaver we have are being stewarded and that we could ultimately restore beaver to their former range in the state. I'm kind of curious if in your research, like a lot of the benefits that come from beavers are pretty well documented, as you said. Like for most people who are researching these, they're, they're referenced as like uh, ecosystem engineers and they also get the title of being a keystone species because they are so important for these wetland ecosystems. And they have like a variety of functions. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about what some of those functions are? Sure, I can step up on that one and just say, yeah, I think as Kate said, it was really our coho recovery work that got us thinking about everything. And, and beavers, and I'll just say that myself, having grown up in, in the Rocky Mountains and in the East Coast of Maryland, where a lot of beaver ponds and beaver dams were, and as a kid who um, went fishing, and caught snakes and caught frogs and turtles, beaver ponds were always just these biological oases. And so I think I had an intrinsic sense of that, but it really was then it came back around that muscle memory when we were, again, working on watershed restoration, salmonid recovery, and thinking again, here we are in this coastal California area where the Pacific Northwest rainforest in some cases meets up with the Mediterranean climate, and we've got big wet short winters and long dry seasons and as we know fish need water and water is important and that's what beavers and specifically the beavers who make beaver dams these structures that are made of sticks and logs and mud and and rocks and depending on what the beavers have to work with that typically can impound that water can hold water back can in, create an in-stream impoundment or connect uh, the stream to off-channel habitat to oxbow bends or other areas that can slow that flow down, hold water on the landscape longer, he increase the recharge of that water in many cases, possibly then extend the flow of water, the stream flow downstream by having this in-stream water holding sponge, improve water quality in many cases because of the wetlands that grow around there, basically biological filtration. Um, they're basically subsurface irrigating the riparian habitat or the wetlands, so it creates all this increased vegetative diversity, which then uh, songbirds or other you know, um, wildlife, other mammals um, can then utilize herbivores themselves. And so again, yeah, that idea that they're a keystone is that they're interacting as a process-based ecosystem engineer by working in these uh, the, uh, flowing riverine systems and managing water to manage vegetation because beavers are herbivores. They don't eat fish. A lot of people think maybe they eat fish, but they only eat plants. They eat roots and they eat shoots and they eat willow bark or the bark of other trees. 
and they're they're basically forest farmers that harvest water and they 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 do irrigation and it just happens to be that a whole bunch of other life that depends on water then gets the benefit from all of the beaver modified habitat that they create you know you you mentioned growing up in you know, observing the beavers in their own habitat. And, and so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what has happened to beavers over time, because in some of the research that I was doing before the show, I was really pretty, uh, and, and actually in conversations I've had with you in the past, like it's pretty impressive how prolific the distribution of beaver were in North America. And then conversely, how limited their populations are now comparatively. And I know a lot, you know, during European settlement of North America, beavers were hunted and trapped for their furs. And it, it did bring them close to extinction to many parts of the U.S. But can you talk a little bit about the history of beavers and, and even about the efforts to reintroduce them to areas and what drove those reintroductions? Sure. Yeah, we used to have beaver all over the North American continent. And to be clear, two different kinds of beaver. We have the Eurasian beaver, castor fiber, and we have the North American beaver. So we're talking about North American beaver tonight. And they went all the way up to the taiga and all the way down to the Sonoran Desert with the extent of the distribution covering 10% of, of our waterways, and basically the estimates are 400 million beaver populated the continent. And so they had a huge impact on our waterways that can still be seen today in looking at all of these montane meadows. You know, they found buried beaver dams that were ultimately responsible for a lot of these amazing features that we still have on the landscape today. And so certainly, yeah. They, because they had that amazing fur that makes felt really beautifully, they became the, the casualty of, of early capitalist endeavors and colonialism and uh, settler uh, extractive economy. And so, like you said, they were brought to near extinction. And here in California, they kind of got a double whammy. There were initially the seagoing captains that were basically trawling the waters for anything with fur so the marine fur bearers but also the terrestrial fur bearers as well were being hit really hard and that was happening in the 16 and 1700s and so there they were getting really uh, pressured and exterminated from from that side of the state and then ultimately in the 1820s and 30s we, the mountain men finally made it over from from the east and and finished it off and so really you know as far as we can tell by 19 early 1900s california they, there were a few remaining beaver populations kind of down in the delta a few maybe up in the klamath area but the the division of fish and wildlife as it was called back then or fish and game actually they could they estimated the numbers were about a thousand at that point and so recognizing the value of beaver at that point they decided to start bringing them back themselves and from 1923 until 1950 there was a very conscientious and concerted effort to restore beaver to a lot of their former range and over 1200 beaver were 
relocated across the state. And some of our beaver populations today stem from those relocations. And we're really grateful that that effort happened because now we have more beaver than we would have otherwise. I was going to say the, the beavers that are currently existing over in Big River, actually, if you go upstream in Big River, those beavers, um, uh, there was a translocation project in Big River um, in that era of the 30s and 40s. And so those are likely the progeny from that effort for the coastal Mendocino beavers. And possibly there's some South Fork eel and, and, and relationship to the beavers in Outlet Creek now that may stem from some of those translocations of that era. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I want to come back around to the Big River beavers again, because I have some questions for you guys about that. But yeah, it is really interesting. I mean, I read one thing that said that basically, the only place where there were not beavers in the continental US was like the tip of Florida and the Great Basin. And Kate, you mentioned like, because of their value, they were reintroduced. But I'm curious, what specific values drove that reintroduction? Is it the same type of value that like those of us, like you, Brock, and myself that work in river restoration, is it that kind of value or was it more uh, about a hunting and commercial value? I think it was both. I mean, certainly if you watch the, uh, the great uh, black and white uh, Idaho uh, footage of the parachuting beavers, which is one of the ways that they returned beaver to remote areas, it was literally throwing beaver out of airplanes and buses with parachutes. Uh, it was to replenish the, the fur trapping, but, but if you look, we have actually in our, uh, we have a beaver stewardship guidebook that's available for free online, and we have a copy of the poster that the, the fish and game division developed about the parachuting beavers and they say in it that they are doing it to uh, restore the watershed and, and help keep the water on the landscape longer and prevent erosion and retain sediment and so they actually at that point had a very clear ecological understanding and sense of it and this was in fact the justification for moving those beaver across California. So I'm curious, if, if in the 1930s we recognized how important they were, why do you think it's taking so long? Taken so long for, you know, kind of the, the the excitement for for beaver and the reintroduction of beaver to, to build. I mean, it's it's somewhat you know conjecture. A lot of us ask this question, but. Um, Kate mentioned that at the, the last year that the beaver translocation was happening by the state in California was 1950. And I think if we really think about what happened in California from 1950 on, post-World War II, the baby boomer moment, the era of big dams, big irrigation projects, industrial agriculture, um, the growth of the state through the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, it looks and feels like that we didn't need the help of beavers because we had big machines, we had hydroelectric, we had oil, we were of the era of damming all the rivers. So they they just decided we don't need beaver dams because we're gonna we're gonna put in the Hoover Dam, we're gonna put in you know O'Shaughnessy Dam, we're gonna put in the you know the, all the all the big dams, and, and it just seems like that those the, the and beaver got. They were just a problem. They became a nuisance. They blocked up the agricultural systems, the, the delta levees, 
and that was of an era when that was that was happening and so I think we're dealing with kind of the the legacy of the of the post World War II industrial booming days and beaver are a casualty like salmon like indigenous people like many folks who kind of it would if you were perceived of to be against progress as defined in those days you you needed to get moved out of the way it was the big get get big or get out kind of thing this a likely conjecture and it's only really really we're only in the last decade to be honest with you some of us have been pushing hard on the beaver thing for a couple decades but any uptake is the last 10 years is the last five years um because maybe things are so desperate that the need for creativity and other support to move things such as salmonic recovery forward is willing to to um work with any solution we can and so we're back to beavers but we got to bring back <laughs> the beavers to get back to the beavers or at least stop right. killing the beavers we have <laughs> yeah the original stream restorationists for sure so so that that actually ties into a question I was going to ask anyways which that you know there is this a little bit of a perceived conflict between where beavers former habitat existed and and now where humans occupy and and use land and so whenever you know two species co-mingle sometimes there's some interactions and, and, and in the history of beaver it seems like they really were viewed as a nuisance in a lot of situations you know just by the potential to damage property from flooding you know blocking culverts whether it like impacted crops or timber but it seems like in our modern day setting these uh, perceived nuisances actually can be pretty easily addressed and I'm curious if either one of you want to talk a little bit about you know just how over time um, people have actually learned to adapt so that beaver can still occupy these areas without being considered such a problem there are great examples of the evolution of coexistence with beaver and you know, early on in the development of the state, the, the 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 landowners, you know, particularly big ag in California, starting in the early 1900s, were really wanting to make sure they could tr manage beaver lethally, kill beaver that were you know gumming up their ditches and punching holes in their levees and whatnot. And that was kind of a back and forth that, you know trapping was banned and then it was allowed and then it was banned and it was allowed, you know, as the population was slowly recovering. And still to this day in California, it stands on the books that any landowner can apply for a permit to depredate or kill a beaver that's causing damage to their property. And so thankfully, since for the last couple decades now, there have been solutions that have been utilized, you know, initially very extensively in the East Coast and now more so in the West uh, to figure out how to live with the critters and receive all the benefits while mitigating any potential damage. And you named uh, the typical ones. So, you know, damage to vegetation is easily solved through wrapping your trees or putting hot wire around areas where you have groups of trees. You can even put masonry sand in color matched 
exterior paint and paint it on the bark of your tree and have it be very aesthetically pleasing to prevent the beaver from chewing down your your vegetation that you want to uh, preserve. And then, yeah, blocking culverts. Sure, that's a, a common thing that beaver love to do. They're trying to create deeper water so they can escape predators. And a culvert for them is just a hole in a dam that is easy to plug. And so putting a cage around that culvert so that they can't effectively block it is a really low-tech, inexpensive way to protect that. And those work really well. We have um, lots of examples on the East Coast that have been in place for, for you know, over a decade that withstand hurricanes and all kinds of, you know, pulses and whatnot with flow. And, um, and similarly, uh, you know, flooding from, from dams. Uh, so we have what's called a flexible pond leveler that you can put into a dam and then you set the height of the pond level and keep it high enough to keep the beaver around, but low enough so that it's not flooding the areas that you don't want flooded. And those work really well as well. And thankfully in California, we are having more opportunities to demonstrate these techniques. We've done it in El Dorado Hills, which has become highly developed and has a lot of areas where the water has gotten um, concentrated in now we've got these devices in that are totally working and, and you know, it's a win-win for everyone. And more recently, we're really excited because we have been partnering with the Sutter National Wildlife Refuge, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, to uh, help promote this device that they've been uh, developing to basically prevent beavers from blocking their weirs that convey the water from one wetland area to another. And we've gotten to demonstrate one on a duck club in the Central Valley. And so this is so successful that we want to see all water users in wetlands that have these weirs that get blocked by beaver implement them. Because, again, having the beaver in the system doesn't have to necessarily be a bad thing. We have plenty of places where they're coexisting in the suburbs. In urban areas, we've got beaver in downtown Napa. We've got them in downtown Sonoma. We've got them in all of these urban environments. I mean, they're in big cities all over, you know, Denver, you know, you name it, Spokane. That's a ton of beaver. So it, it's not impossible to coexist. It just, you know, it, it just requires awareness of how beaver work and what these solutions are and how to implement them effectively and then adaptively manage. You know, we're doing a project right now with the Sonoma Water Agency on a creek in downtown Sonoma where the beaver keep building dams. And it's, we're ultimately helping them figure out how to just create a whole management process for anywhere in the areas that they manage that beaver might show up and how to go through a decision-making tree to decide what's the best approach. And all places that have beaver could have this. And we have examples of beaver management plans that show you how to support municipalities and landowners in, in coming up with these solutions. And it's not that, it's not that hard. Um, it does take persistence. And, um, but there's funding out there, and there, there's help to be had. So. Um, yeah, we shouldn't let that stop us from receiving the benefits of beaver because we're needlessly killing, you know, hundreds of beaver in the state every year. 
and it's just it's a waste we really could um, be slowing that down especially in places where we've got listed species that are depending on that habitat we really want to make sure you know not only are beaver providing this critical habitat for that but there's great studies coming out that not you know beaver basically create these ribbons of green fire resilient wetlands that are helping create these oases uh, in the case of wildfires and it's very well documented and so especially California who's seeing so many wildfires now having more of these beaver managed wetlands to protect us from wildfires would be a very good idea. Yeah, I just read the uh, the Smokey the Beaver journal <laughs> article about that and I mean in some ways it's kind of common sense but but sometimes we do need you know, a peer-reviewed article to really like prove how important the, of a role these species can play. But it was basically saying that riparian corridors stay greener during wildfires throughout the Western U.S. where there are beaver. So it's a really big, it could be a really important component of our climate resiliency. One of the things I really love about the, the ways that, uh, the kind of different creative ways that people have come up to address beavers when they are creating kind of what's considered, you know, again, a nuisance for people is just how it really seems like to, to be effective, you need to understand the life history of beaver overall and kind of how they maintain habitat. So I think, Kate, you first told me about, is it called the beaver deceiver where they will create generally will create a, a dam across a culvert and only know to repair that dam if they can hear the sound of water leaking from it and so there was a creative way to deal with that by putting a pipe through the dam so that it's actually always lowering and you're not dealing with flooding and you're still getting water going through your culvert but the only way that you would know to do that is if you really had a good understanding of beaver. Do you have a, any other examples of just how understanding how beaver function um, has helped address not only just finding innovative ways for beaver and humans to coexist in the same area, but maybe even in, in, with regards to habitat restoration? Yeah, I mean, I, I think as Kate mentioned, that there, the the beaver deceiver is a is a, a specific name for what is more generally referred to as a pond leveler. And so again, yeah, when if for instance, what is known as base flow. So during the summer in our creeks, there's the base flow, and and if you if the beavers want to dam that up and make a pond, and if the height of the dam and the impoundment is infringing on some property that you perceive that you don't want flooded, as Kate said, you, uh, you basically can uh, excavate um, through the beaver dam in such a way that that pipe allows the ba enough base flow to come and go through that pond so that the pond elevation doesn't increase anymore, meaning there's not water flowing over top of the dam. And then basically, as you mentioned, as long as they aren't, if, if there's not more water coming in, then they don't will not build the dam higher. Beavers are very smart and very intentional with their work, and they're only going to work as hard as they need to work. And so if you can equilibrate the inflow to the outflow to keep the 
beaver pond as deep as they need it without flooding your property, then you have a win-win situation for everybody. It's the same thing that Kate mentioned. You could put sand in, in paint, latex paint, and put it on the tree because we under, recognize that beavers, while beavers are big rodents and they need to chew to keep their teeth sharp and short, they also don't want to chew on a bunch of sandpaper. And so it's like anything else. We just You compose with the biology of the organism and work with them, and, and then it's not that complicated. And I think our sense is, is that the beaver glass is overflowing with benefits rather than being half empty with problems. And we would prefer our creeks to be clear and cold and copious with coho and have to do a little bit of management of coexistence devices rather than be risk averse to beavers, which leads to solutions aversion, and accept dry creeks that don't have fish in them. <laughs> We'd rather, we'd rather manage a few flow control devices and cage some trees and live with beaver on behalf of the benefits of the water quality and quantity and biodiversity and, and fish recovery and productive wells and subsurface irrigation for grazing paddocks, for rangelands. And, and so um, we just think that working with beavers, we, we all benefit. They're an emergent property. The whole of beavers is greater than the sum of not having beavers. I, I would, that's beautiful, Brock. I would add to that too, that back to what I was saying earlier is, you know, beaver, they're a big 40 to 80 pound rodent that's pure muscle and fatty tail. So they are like one of the tastiest treats on the block trying to avoid getting preyed upon. And so knowing that for them, they need deep enough water, both to drink and to live in and to grow their food in, but they also need it to escape. And so their behavior is going to be, they're going to be looking for places where they can deepen the water, widen the water, make the water go where they can access more food. Imagine trying to keep that body alive on vegetation and bark alone, right? That's a lot of calories to consume. And so they're going to dig canals. They're going to try to basically create a water world where they can access everything they need without ever having to get out on land. And so keep that in mind, you know, and, and they are induced to, to dam things, not only just from sound, but also feel. They're very sensitive. And so that's why we'll often put on these pipes, we'll put like a cage on the inlet of the pipe so they can't get close enough to actually feel the flow because they're such well-designed engineers that it's just the feel and the sound will, like, show them where to go to, to plug things. And so we just get to be one step ahead of them and figure out how to prevent them access so they aren't induced to do that blocking behavior that they do. And they're very curious around eating like they have certain foods they really love and depend on whether it's willow bark or cattail roots or you know they're really you know they're seasonal eaters they'll come out and eat grasses and leaves and whatnot but they will try everything and i have to say when we were out um on big river I saw a first where a beaver had actually chewed a little bit of redwood bark. And I was like, wow, I've never seen beaver test redwood. And they'll trial and see, you know, is there something there? But the other thing is they've got these 
teeth that are constantly growing and the teeth are what keep them alive because otherwise they couldn't harvest the vegetation for eating, let alone for building things and impounding water. So they need to sharpen their teeth and they're going to chew at things even if they aren't eating it. So just know that, that we need to make sure that we allow them access to the foods that they like to eat and also to something to chew on because they, they need that to maintain the health of their teeth. I would say that, yeah, we did a field trip with some folks up to the big river and off the main stem of that channel is that side channel, some like a old mill pond or something. And not only was redwood, I think our first time seeing redwood, but also wax myrtle. I don't think we'd ever seen them chewing wax myrtle, but what they're feeding on in that pond are these ginormous rhizomes that are like thick as a leg of an elephant. And they look like elephant legs of the native uh, pond lily, the little water lily with that little small yellow flower. And the beavers were just, imagine the carbohydrates in a like eight inch circular diameter pond lily rhizome. And then that place was loaded with red-legged frogs. It was amazing how many to benefit on the red-legged frogs in that very interesting big river beaver habitat. If you are just tuning in, you are listening to the Ecology Hour on KZYX, Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, listener-supported community radio. And I am interviewing Kate Lundquist and Brock Dolman from the Occidental Arts and Ecology Center about the importance of beaver to wetland ecosystems. So now that, I guess I'll come back around to the question I was going to ask you, Brock, about Big River. Cause, and, it, and it does tie into a bigger question that I wanted to ask anyways, which is, so Big River is one of these watersheds where, where beaver existed. They've been reintroduced. You know, we, we just discussed, like, how incredibly opportunistic they are. And it also seems like they're pretty flexible and adaptive. And Big River already provides a lot of this kind of like ponded habitat for them. So they don't even necessarily need to build a lot of dams. Like there are um, existing wetland features that probably provide habitat for them. Yet, we don't see a huge population of beaver in the watershed. And so I, you know, I, I, Kate brought up a good point that they're probably pretty tasty for most predators, but I have wondered why in Big River and in other places, why aren't beaver populations rebounding and why aren't they more abundant? And, and I've wondered, is this a reflection of current California policy about beaver? Are we still just thinking about them as a hunting focal species or a nuisance? Like, what's going on there? <laughs> That is so many good questions. Um, you know, one, one thing we didn't, we haven't mentioned so much about and is happening in Big River is, and, and, and many of our coastal streams, I think our conifer-dominated coastal streams that are very flashy, they're rain-based systems, we're not so much, we're not really snowmelt systems for the most part, um, is that these systems come up and down really quick. And of channel-spanning dams in these coastal river systems that persist throughout the big flows we get are not as common as we see in other places that have a different uh, hydrograph, if you will, a flashiness. And so the beavers in Big River, for the most part, except for those ones that are in that little side channel with the water lilies, are um, what we call bank-burrowing beavers. So they actually make a lodge where they 
underwater. They burrow into the bank and then they come up on the other, somewhere up inside the bank above water under a root water or something. And they live in a lodge that's underneath a subterranean bank burrow. And, and they get to do that. And, and like you said, there's plenty of deep water in many parts of the lower portions of Big River that they don't need to make a dam. Um, and so bank burrowing beavers and dam building beavers are still the same beaver and they can do all things. So they're not different. Some people get confused that they're somehow different. Um, and I don't know about mountain lion predation on them. Mountain lions love deep beavers and that's, besides humans, that's probably the dominant predator. It's, Big River is interesting in a, again, they're chewing on redwoods and fur, but that's not their preferred food source. They don't eat much in the way of conifer bark. And in fact, probably not much at all, if anything. So they really do need, and they don't like alders that much. They'll eat them, they'll chew on them, but they're not their favorite thing. So willows, you know, it's, I mean, there's willows obviously in Big River for sure, but they're not, it's not loaded with them. And those water lilies are kind of, so some of us wonder about carrying capacity with respect to vegetation. And if that has something to do with limiting the carrying capacity of beavers, because once you get into, they can be estuarine, beavers can go in salt water. So those lower portions of Big River where it's got a tidal influence, they can certainly, they go down there. They don't have issues with salt per se, but the, the vegetation community. So it's a little bit complicated, um, different than maybe say what 10 mile might look like or parts of the lower Garcia that we're often very interested in as well, because there's bigger riparian corridors kind of based on the shape and the, the, the geology and the floodplains of, say, how the, those systems are different than Big River, which is a little bit more, um, you know, it, it, contain, it doesn't have the same open, wide floodplain type habitat. So it's interesting. Well, it kind of goes back to that historic land use. And, like, Big River was one of those splash dam logging enterprises so so many of our rivers just got completely scoured out and turned into these single um threaded channels or has you know at one main river channel without a lot of connectivity to its floodplain and we know that beavers do a great job of restoring connectivity to floodplain but i've wondered about this in addition to maybe the food component do you think that previous land use has actually just kind of constrained where they can be I think it can absolutely have an impact, especially, you know, if it's changed the, the hydrology and the flow and the, the vegetation, you know, all of those can, can impact. And I would think, though, you know, we do have incidences of beaver in, in big systems. They just aren't channel-spanning dammers in those systems. They're basically living out of the bank, like Frost said. And so a great example is the Smith River, where there's a bunch of beaver in there, and there's some amazing work that was done by Marissa Parrish and Justin Garwood where they looked at the, the bank burrows and the debris piles of the chewed sticks that the beaver put out their front door when they were done feeding, and those alone created this incredible off-channel refugia for things like coho salmon and a bunch of other native species. And so, you know, they... They're similar, I mean, like any smart organism, they're trying to conserve calories. And so, yeah, they don't want to be in a system that's super hard for them to forage and, and move around. And so uh, part of the way they deal with that is, you know, creating off-channel habitat themselves, but then also having these, these bank burrows that they can hide out in during high flows 
and um, so it it's kind of a, a, a mixed bag and a, it depends kind of situation for sure but it, a lot of folks get really fixated on the dams themselves and how that's the ultimate importance and absolutely there's a lot of importance where what that those dams you know benefits that they can provide and it, it seems that they, they are pretty successful in our coastal systems of doing temporary summer push-up dams is what they do and that creates this beautiful temporary habitat for things like juvenile coho who need that over summering habitat to be able to survive the dry season and and then sure the dams blow out in the winter the beaver are fine there's enough flow for them to survive being preyed upon and then they can just build it back up again when the flows get low which makes them even more valuable and helps with you know in our efforts to become more resilient to drought and low flows but i just wanted to say um that for you all in mendocino county while we're talking about big river Big, seeing beaver action in, in big rivers is a little bit challenging. Maybe you get a kayak or a stand-up paddleboard and try to go up there and get a look-see. It's not as obvious up there because there aren't big dams and the lodges are hard to see. But I would recommend, and maybe the folks at the Mendocino RCD, uh, Maricela de Santa Ana or Joe Scriven, who work on the Willits um, bypass and the mitigation there outside of Willits and Outlet Creek. One of the great um, beaver habitats in the North Bay and for you all specifically in Mendocino County and and um, if there was an interested group maybe you Anna and others could contact them and go get a field trip out there Kate and I got to do a field trip out there this last year and the work that the beavers are doing out in that outlet Creek mitigation for the whole 101 bypass thing and the benefits to the, the bobcats and to the lions and to the elk and to the ducks and the geese everybody it's it's a little bit of a beaver wonderland paradise where you really get to see the powerful benefit of a series of dams and the bank burrows and the overflowing banks and the floodplain connectivity and it's accessible enough assuming you know if you're legally allowed to go out there on that property with the Mendocino RCD folks so I would highly recommend that if anyone's really curious about that's your best Mendocino beaver uh, uh, palooza opportunity I think in the county yeah, that's great. I do think that beaver could play a really important role in um, watershed restoration here. And it's interesting to me, you know, you, you referenced a couple of watersheds where we've either seen them or, or we think that that the types of structures that they build and the types of habitat that results from that would really be beneficial for fish and other species. And in, in, in a lot of instances, there aren't beaver always available and so that's resulted in some of these like beaver dam simulations and I'm just kind of curious about you know that's a relatively new technique that's being used and I know that there's pros and cons to trying to simulate a beaver dam or to try and recreate beaver habitat without actual beavers there to do that work and so could you talk a little bit about the kind of efficacy of building these types of structures and and um, in what situations it's appropriate to try and simulate a beaver structure and in what situations it just may not be very fruitful sure so beaver restoration is is part of a broader 
science of what we call process-based restoration. And it this kind of framing for it and branding um, is is newer than than a lot of techniques, but it it really ultimately is is very similar to all the different efforts that we've been doing to increase wood, for example, into our systems. You know, we have these structurally starved systems that that you know all the wood got pulled out, the beaver got pulled out, and now these systems are becoming deranged because of it. And so, bringing the beaver back themselves and supporting the beaver in staying is kind of like step one of, you know, if we're lucky enough to have beaver, then absolutely it could be appropriate if they are building dams to try to help reinforce these dams. This is where the beaver dam analog movement kind of originated, you know, where it was like, oh, we want these dams to persist longer, so we're going to reinforce them. We're going to try to build them nearby to help the beaver expand their range and just kind of give them uh, a paw up, basically, to really support their persistence and, and you know, make sure that they can go in the areas that we're trying to restore, encourage them to go into the areas that we want to restore. And so really it's, you know, ultimately looking at the source problems and, you know, do we have beaver there already that we could be supporting? And if not, could we be mimicking beaver? Is it appropriate to be using these kind of, you know, lower tech but high impact structures that can be done, you know, that can be hand placed, that can that are, have a very kind of low carbon footprint is a lot of the ethos that really kind of is behind this work of, you know, especially in places, you know, that are remote and places where, you know, we're all trying to reduce our carbon footprint and we've gotten really excited with all the big yellow toys and to do a lot of this restoration work. And there's, you know, places where we could really, where it is more appropriate to be mimicking beaver and doing it in smaller order streams and doing, you know, more frequent smaller dams in places and, you know, really just looking at how beaver are doing it and, and getting our good guidance and ideas from the expert engineers, which are the beaver themselves. And so, yeah, I think they, they've proven to be really effective and they're being implemented in places all over the state now, you know, from our headwaters, mountain meadows, you know, our foothills all the way down to the coast. And, you know, they similar to beaver dams, you know, if you're doing, you know, it just really depends on what your restoration goals are. Um, if beavers haven't been successful in building these dams in these, you know, really high flow systems, then maybe that's not appropriate to be doing these these lighter, um, you know, more beaver-like structures. But it's there's there's a huge range of possibility, and uh, it's a really exciting moment that we're in right now in that we have a lot more agencies and restorationists and landowners getting turned on to this low-tech process-based restoration approach as a complement to all of the other restoration techniques that are being used. And it's, it's really become, it's becoming more accessible and we've got some great, you know, demonstrations all over, you know, especially in these places that have been burned over 
we've been working on a site up in Plymouth County that was burned over in the Dixie Fire. And just seeing what those structures, you know, lots of small structures, hand-placed wood, lots of people coming in, the tribe, you know, helping. This is land that they're stewarding, the Mighty Summit Consortium. And they, you know, have all these plans for wanting to restore this beautiful valley and, and wet meadow. And there's so much conifer encroachment. And so it really, it, it works well towards, like, fuel load management and then fire burn recovery. Like, it really ties into all of these different processes that, that we're trying to work with and harness and trap that sediment and capture that ash and make sure that um, we we help heal all of these deeply incised systems that have been downcut through overgrazing and, and logging and all of the other land uses. So what do you think's next in the realm of, of beaver science and, and beaver restoration? I mean you both mentioned at the beginning of the call that you are on the advisory board of the Beaver Institute and the Beaver Trust. And I'm just kind of curious, like, who are these groups and, and like, what's, what's going on on a policy level? Well, I would definitely um, recommend folks go to the oac.org, our website, and you can click on to the Water Institute page and, or, or you can search just Bring Back the Beaver Campaign. And we have a wonderful little booklet about beaver in California creating a culture of stewardship, which is really informative and will give people a better sense of some of the history and some of the current opportunities in California. And it's got a copy of that poster that Kate mentioned with the, the parachuting beavers in the El Dorado. And then um, uh, there's also a link there of an a online California Beaver Summit that uh, Kate and I were a part of with a big group of folks on a, a steering committee that was a two-day summit that there's a, a link to the California Beaver Summit on the webpage and all of the various talks. And we had an incredible list of presenters um, from all over the country, actually, who presented on all kinds of things having to do with beavers, the biology, the restoration. And in fact, there was some talk about policy. You're asking about policy. Um, beaver are a, a, like all other animals in the state, are a public trust resource that the California Department of Fish and Wildlife is dominantly is, is responsible for on our behalf. And so the mammals, like beavers, are managed by the wildlife branch of the California Department of Fish and Wildlife. And so Kate and I and a, a number of others are actively involved with our various uh, CDFW, California Department of Fish and Wildlife staff, both at the regional level but also at the state level in Sacramento, and talking about um, non-lethal coexistence strategies, working with the department and their wardens and the biologists, um, also working on pilot projects with them, whether they're beaver dam analog pilots in collaboration with possible beaver relocation pilots. Um, and so there's a lot of interest in, in really better understanding what are the benefits of beaver and um, how can the state engage in working with them, especially considering how much, how many millions of dollars the state is spending trying to uh, bring back salmon, increase groundwater, improve water quality, um, improve fire resiliency, and why not invest some of that money in a native organism that can help do that with us, and they can do it better, cheaper, faster, and they don't even need permits. You don't need a CEQA permit for beavers. They just do the work. And so um, we think that there's a lot of win-wins out there, and, and it appears that there's more 
willingness and interest at various levels of, of the at governmental agency levels and at the federal level as well with National Marine Fisheries Service, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, um, National Forests, uh, BLM, National Parks, uh, all of those land ownerships of which California is significantly owned by the federal government. <laughs> Not so much in the coastal zone, although Mendocino National Forest, but up in the Sierras in a big way. I will add just that, you know, we've got some great opportunities right now with the state. Our California Natural Resources Department is, is doing a bunch of planning and strategies right now, and, and we already submitted a letter uh, suggesting that we integrate beaver and process-based restoration for their natural and working land climate smart strategy. But there's also the, the 30 by 30 strategy that's coming up. And if anyone's interested, you know, especially those who represent organizations, we're looking for organizations to join us in signing on to that letter that basically just says that, you know, our our state would benefit from considering beaver and process-based restoration in their uh, 30 by 30 planning. So you can contact us at the Osceola Arts and Ecology Center if you're an organization that would like to sign on to that letter. Oh, that's great. And that makes a lot of sense because, I mean, with that planning, is part of that vision to have more beaver reintroductions? And it seems like that would naturally uh, overlay well with more public land so that there's lots of open space for these beavers to occupy. It's definitely part of the conversation, for sure. And, you know, we always want to start with the beaver that we have and make sure that we're doing the best that we can to take care of those. And then, sure, in places where all options have been exhausted, then let's consider if we could do a relocation in, in a way that works well. And, you know, ultimately there are places that used to have beaver that would really benefit from having them return. So we are absolutely in favor of exploring how to carry out a beaver relocation pilot. And uh, that conversation is ongoing and uh, stay tuned. Yeah, this, this is a global move, global movement, and you you already mentioned you know we're part of the Beaver Institute and the Beaver Trust, and and there are lots of amazing people all over the world that are working to restore all kinds of species, but in particular beaver. Uh, and so definitely check out those organizations. The Beaver Institute trains people in how to do these coexistence techniques. And so if you're someone who's looking for some interesting work, you could contact the Beaver Institute and become part of one of those trainings to learn how to do these devices. We need more people in California who know how to do this. They are nowhere near enough. And so that's a great opportunity. And definitely check out what's happening in Europe, you know, and Asia. They're doing all sorts of amazing stuff to restore beaver in, in their midst as well. So it's an exciting time to be working with this species, for sure. How about you, Brock? I did, I did have one um, other resource for the listeners out there that um, either if you like to read books or if you like to listen to books on tape, I guess they say, or it's not really tape, it's digital. <laughs> but um, a wonderful friend of ours named Ben Goldfarb wrote a really sweet, informative page-turner book called Eager, The Surprising Secret Life of Beavers and Why They Matter by Ben Goldfarb. And it's a really wonderful book. It covers 
um, a lot of territory, but there is a, a sweet little chapter in there about called California Streaming that talks about our California beaver work. But it also talks about work all over North America and, in fact, over in, in, in um, the U.K. And, and Europe as well. So people might enjoy reading that, too, or listening to that. And that concludes another episode of the Ecology Hour. I'd like to thank my guests, Kate Lundquist and Brock Dolman, for sitting down and having this discussion with me. And I'd also like to thank you listeners for tuning in to Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.